If you have a Bible this morning, please turn to the book of Luke, chapter 23. Preaching through the book of Luke, we're nearing the end of the book. One more chapter to go after this chapter here. It's a book about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. A book of facts about Jesus Christ. Luke was writing to a man named Theophilus who knew some things about Jesus and Luke wanted him to know all kinds of things about Jesus. So Luke wrote this long letter to Theophilus about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We're in Luke 23. We'll be reading uh, verses 26 to 31. Luke 23, starting in verse 26. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning you have given to us. We thank you, Father. Bless morning. We thank you for the sun. Uh, Thank you for an opportunity to come together. We are thankful, Father, that uh, as God of this universe, you don't dwell in buildings, that you dwell within the body of Christ. You dwell in a people. And as we gather together, uh, we are in the presence of God simply because we're in the presence of one another and you indwell the body of Christ. So we thank you, Father. We believe you are here right now. Uh, We are gathered in the name of Jesus. Jesus, you said, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, I'm there. So we believe you are here. And we ask, Father, now as we read your word that you would bless us. Uh, Father, that you'd enlighten our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit and bless us now in this part of your word. We thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. And as they led Jesus away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Amen. You've probably heard at some point in your life this expression, a friend in need is a friend indeed. A friend who sticks with you in your time of need, your time of adversity, well, that is your true friend, a friend indeed. You know, lots of people might seem to be your friends uh, when you prosper in this life, when you're wealthy or, or you're, you're successful, you're, you're popular, you'll have lots of apparent friends. You just uh, can look at people who win the lottery. <laughs> lots of new friends all over the place, all kinds of new BFFs, uh, as you might say, best friends forever. People, people love to be friends with a winner. Euripides, a Greek writer, he said, prosperity by itself in every case finds friends. Well, listen, if you, if you go through a time of need in this life, you go through some, some sort of painful adversity in life, you, you lose your job, you lose your, 
your money, you lose your, your success, you lose everything, maybe, you will find out very quickly who your true friends really are. A friend in your time of need is a friend indeed. It's a true friend. And, you know, in this passage here, Jesus appears to have some true friends. You know, Jesus is in some serious adversity here. He's already been beaten several times in the book of Luke. All of his closest disciples have now left him. He's now marching on his way to the cross. And during his time of adversity here, you know, Jesus appears to have some sort of friends here. Some, some people who are with him in his adversity. Luke mentions Two different people or groups of people here who are with Jesus in some way on his way to the cross. And the first person Luke mentions here is this man named Simon. If you look again at verse 26, Luke says that as they led Jesus away here, they they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. At this point in in the book of Luke, Jesus has already been condemned to die. In Luke 22, Jesus was arrested and and then subjected to a trial in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the the highest council of religious leaders in Israel at the time. And the Sanhedrin, they, they accused Jesus of blasphemy because he claimed to be equal with God. And the Sanhedrin then dragged Jesus before Pilate, the highest Roman official in the land, and they they requested that Pilate execute Jesus. Pilate, however, he, he examined Jesus, and Pilate said three different times in the book of Luke that Jesus was innocent. And yet the Sanhedrin there in front of Pilate, they, they just persisted. They basically just shouted Pilate down. And, and so Pilate, in, in an attempt to avoid a riot, I believe, he, he sentenced Jesus to be crucified. And Jesus was at Pilate's headquarters at the time, large building in Jerusalem, and a group of Roman soldiers now leads Jesus away. It is probably now just a little bit before noon on what we now call Good Friday. It might be 11 o'clock in the morning or something now. The Jewish leaders are most likely following Jesus here along with a crowd of other people. Luke, Luke says in the next verse that there were a great multitude of people here. So this is a large procession of people. And Luke says down in verse 33 that they were leading Jesus to a place called the skull. John 19 says that in Aramaic it was called Golgotha. And we don't know today the exact location of Golgotha. We do know that it was outside of the city of Jerusalem because John 19 says that it was near the city. It may have been an elevated site, a, a hill of sorts, because Mark 15 says that it could be seen from a distance. And Golgotha may also have been located near a major road because both Matthew and Mark say that people passing by could see it. 
So, so picture here, when you think of this place called the Skull, picture maybe a, a hill or a, an elevated site near the city wall of Jerusalem, probably also near a major road into the city of Jerusalem. And we don't know exactly why this place was called the Skull. It could have just been a, 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 common, a common place uh, for execution, in this day, and, and that name, the, the skull then, being just kind of a, a figurative name for this place of death. But, but some people believe that, that this hill or elevated site actually looked like some type of skull. And we don't know that for sure. For some reason, this thing was called the skull, and some guards here are now leading Jesus to it. And this was probably a lengthy walk for Jesus. Because the Romans, when they crucified someone, they would typically lead that person on the longest possible route through the city. It was a way of shaming the person in the entire city. It was also a type of crime deterrent. It was the Romans' way of trying to strike fear in the hearts of the other people in the city to keep them from committing crimes. So, so picture Jesus here with these, these Roman soldiers, and he's being followed now by this large crowd of people weaving through the streets and the alleys of Jerusalem. People probably standing off to the side as they're passing through. People looking through the windows, the the doors on their houses. And for Jesus, this, this right here was a walk of intense suffering. You know, many people today call this, this path of his to the cross here the Via Dolorosa, the, the way of suffering or the, the way of sorrows for Jesus. And, and Jesus, you, you think about it, th- th- he's really been suffering for quite some time now. I mean, Jesus probably hasn't slept now in, in maybe some 30 hours. And, and last night, Luke said that after this Passover meal, Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane in agony. His sweat like great drops of blood falling to the ground. A little bit later in that garden, he was arrested, and the guards who then watched him all this last night, they blindfolded Jesus, Luke said. They mocked him. They beat him. They spit on him. And then this morning when Luke was taken to Pilate, Pilate then sent Jesus over to Herod. And Luke said that Herod also mocked Jesus, treated him with contempt, probably had his guards beat Jesus. And Herod then sent Jesus back to Pilate. And the Bible says that Pilate then had Jesus punished on two occasions. Now Luke doesn't tell us about the beatings, but Matthew and Mark do. Pilate had Jesus punished the first time, right after Pilate declared Jesus to be innocent. And then Pilate had Jesus punished again, right after he handed Jesus over to be crucified, which was right before this passage here. So Jesus has been beaten again right before this passage. And these two beatings that Jesus received from Pilate here were brutal beatings. The the first, maybe not quite as severe as the second. I mentioned last Sunday that the Romans had three distinct levels 
of legal floggings back then, whippings. And the Bible writers seem to indicate that the first beating Jesus received from Pilate was the mildest, the the first level of Roman punishment, Roman flogging, called in Latin the fustigatio. It was still a brutal beating for Jesus. It's, uh, John, John records it in John 19. He says the Roman soldiers whipped Jesus. They, they shoved a crown of thorns on his head, long thorns probably piercing his skin, blood running down his face. They, they then clothed him in a purple robe. They beat him probably with their fists and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. But Pilate then had Jesus beaten a second time. Right before this passage, right after Pilate handed him over to be crucified, and the Bible writers indicate that Jesus then received the most severe form of Roman flogging. Matthew and Mark say that Jesus was scourged, which is the technical term that was used for this most severe of Roman punishments. It was called in Latin, the verberatio, incredibly, incredibly violent. A Roman scourging was so harsh that according to Roman law, it could not be inflicted on a Roman citizen at all. It could only be inflicted on slaves and non-citizens like Jesus. It was typically only inflicted after somebody had been condemned to die And that punishment, the verberatio, was often fatal. That punishment was the thing that the Romans used to decrease the time that people would remain on the cross alive. They would beat them within a whisker of death so they wouldn't stay alive on the cross for days. And Jesus only stays alive on the cross for a few hours. It was also an incredibly humiliating beating. One writer said to scourge a man was to beat him worse than one would beat a stupid animal. It was belittling, debasing, and demeaning. The scourging was performed in public to increase the shame of the one who received it. The person who received it was first either stripped completely or down to a loincloth. He was then tied like an animal to a whipping post and then whipped from shoulder to loin on both the back and the front. And the whip the Romans used for this verberatio was called a flagellum. They didn't always use it in their whippings, but they did for this worst kind of whipping. And this flagellum resembled the British cat of nine tails, if you've ever seen it. A handle with lots of leather straps coming out of the handle. The cat of nine tails, however, was designed just to bruise the flesh. But the Roman flagellum was designed to rip and tear the flesh. The flagellum had multiple leather strands. Each of the strands were several feet long. And each of those leather strands was weighted on the end with jagged pieces of metal and rock and broken bone. And the jagged pieces would hit the skin so violently that it would split the skin. And those jagged pieces would then stick in the skin and kind of grab the skin. And when the flagellum was pulled back, it would typically pull chunks of flesh with it. 
Eusebius of Caesarea, a historian, he gave an account of a Roman scourging. He said, quote, The bystanders were struck with amazement when they saw the victims lacerated with scourges even to the innermost veins and arteries so that the hidden inward parts of the body, both their bowels and organs, were exposed to view. It was an absolutely horrific, humiliating, often fatal punishment, unimaginable pain and suffering. And Jesus, at this point, at the start of this passage, he has been scourged by the Romans. And another thing about the Romans, the Jews, when they would whip somebody, would stop at 39 lashes. The Romans would never stop at 39 lashes. They were relentless in their beatings, in these types of beatings. And you think of Jesus at this point. Now, it's easy to read right through this passage and not catch it, but it's very possible that at the start of this passage here, some of his bones, his muscles, maybe even his arteries and his veins are visible to some degree, blood everywhere. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Long before Jesus was ever born, Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 52, 14, that the Messiah would one day, his appearance would one day be marred beyond human semblance. Marred beyond human appearance. And there he is. Jesus the Messiah. He's been whipped beyond recognition. A, a mere shadow of a man. Stumbling blindly now through the streets of Jerusalem. Bloody beyond belief. Excruciating pain. Hasn't slept. Hasn't eaten. Lost a ton of blood. Very, very weak. It probably would have been difficult enough here for Jesus just to carry himself to Golgotha. Just to make it there. Period. But Jesus had to carry more than himself here. The Romans, when they executed someone, they would make the condemned person carry the cross beam of his own cross to his crucifixion. Not the entire cross, just the, just the cross beam. Plutarch, the Greek historian, he said, every criminal who goes to execution must carry his own cross on his back. And it was another way for the Romans to shame the individual. Take him through the entire city, and it was a way for them to visibly announce to the city that this man was condemned to die on his way to his execution. The crossbeam, which was called the patibulum, was usually strapped behind the neck on the shoulders. The arms were stretched out wide and strapped over the top of the beam. It's usually a very rough piece of wood and it weighed many times over 100 pounds. And John 19 says that Jesus started off here bearing his own cross. Man, you can just imagine how that must have felt to Jesus. To, to carry this, this abrasive, heavy wooden beam just grinding its way into your open, raw flesh. This pain just exploding, I'm sure, 
in the brain of Jesus. And Jesus can't make it. He slumps to the ground under the weight. And man, these Roman soldiers here will not touch that thing with the 10-foot pole. There's way too much shame associated with a cross for the Romans to pick it up and carry it. So what do they do? Luke says in verse 26 that they seize this man named Simon. Just coming in from the country, they then lay this crossbeam on Simon, and he carries it behind Jesus the rest of the way. And man, just amazing to think here. Amazing to think that Jesus actually needed someone to carry his cross. Jesus is God, according to the Bible. Man, when Jesus stepped down out of heaven, the eternal Son of God coming and taking on human flesh, he also became fully man, the one and only God-man. And Jesus experienced here as a man all the pains and weaknesses of human life. Herman Ritterboss said, quote, He, the Son of God, experienced here the humiliation of utter impotence. He was reduced to the level of an invalid who needed the help of a passing stranger so that he could walk his path of death to the end. Thus, Jesus became here an image of the deepest human misery. End quote. Now, there's a recent movie, you might have seen it, called Unbroken. And in that movie, the hero, Louis Zamperini, at one point during his imprisonment, he holds this wooden beam above his head for an incredibly long time to prove to his captors that he could not be broken. And Jesus can't hold his beam. He cannot hold it. And do you know why? Because Jesus here is broken. He's physically done here. But listen, that that shouldn't shock any of us. Because Jesus didn't come to earth to conquer through strength. Oh, Jesus came to earth to conquer through brokenness. A, A broken body for sinners like you and me. And man, there there he is, physically broken. So the soldiers tell Simon to carry the cross. Matthew and Mark say they compelled Simon to do it. The word for an official requisition. You've heard before of of the police in the U.S. commandeering someone's car, uh, taking someone's car for a time for an official purpose. Well, the Roman soldiers, they basically just commandeered a man. They they took Simon here and they forced him to carry this cross. A very shameful thing for Simon to have to do. To carry this cross beam through the city of Jerusalem looking like he was the one who was condemned to die here. Incredibly shameful. We don't know much about this man Simon. Luke just says here that he was a man from Cyrene which was in northern Africa. So Simon was probably a black man in this Middle Eastern context. It was not a Caucasian context. Middle Eastern context. Simon here was a black man there. In the movie, The Greatest Story Ever Told, the role of Simon was played by Sidney Poitier. So maybe picture someone like that here. Simon may have been just visiting 
Jerusalem for this Passover festival, or Simon could have been working around Jerusalem for some reason, because Luke says here he was coming in from the country, or he was coming in from the fields. We don't know. This man, Simon, was entering the city for some reason. He, he sees this procession of, of people coming towards him. He, he see the, sees this, this absolutely pulverized man lying underneath this bloody crossbeam. And man, before this man, Simon, knows that the Roman soldiers have looked at him. And they've called him out of the crowd. And they have lashed this bloody crossbeam to his back. And he now begins to carry it behind this stumbling man to Golgotha. And man, you know, it it looks at this point, it looks here as if Jesus now has some sort of friend. A friend for Jesus in his time of need. But let's just think for a second about What's really going on here? I want you to think just for a second about this man, Simon. Picture him in your mind, this crossbeam strapped to his back, bent over, walking behind Jesus to Golgotha. You know, many people believe that what God has given us there with this man, Simon, is a picture of discipleship. People believe that God has given us there a, a picture of what it looks like to follow Christ as his disciple as a Christian. And, and that's, that's certainly possible. Jesus had said several times here in the book of Luke that in order to be his disciple, in order to be a Christian, you must pick up your cross in this life and follow Jesus. You, you must choose to, to embrace shame and suffering in this life on account of Jesus. You must choose to embrace maybe even death on account of Jesus in order to be his disciple. Jesus has taught on several occasions that in order to be his disciple, you must pick up your cross and follow him. And many people believe that God has now given us right there with this man, Simon, a visible picture of that, a picture of discipleship, what it looks like to be a Christian. And that's certainly possible. I definitely don't have any problem with that. It's possible that God was giving us a little picture there of Christian discipleship. But listen, I do not personally believe that this man Simon here is first and foremost a picture of discipleship. No, I believe that this man Simon here is first and foremost a picture of condemnation. And you just think about it. You know, this cross that Simon is carrying here, In one sense, you could say that it's Jesus' cross because Jesus will be killed on it. But in another sense, you you could say that this cross here is not actually Jesus' cross. It's Simon's cross. And why? Because Jesus doesn't deserve to be killed on the cross. But Simon does. This is a cross of condemnation. It's a cross of of guilt. And Jesus was innocent. A perfectly sinless man, according to the Bible. 
People have been saying all through this chapter now that Jesus was innocent. And innocent people don't deserve to die on a cross. No, the Bible says that sinners deserve to die on a cross. Jesus didn't deserve to die on this cross of condemnation, but Simon did. And why? Because Simon, whoever Simon was, Simon was a sinner. You know, you, you can look at this passage, man, and you, you can think, oh man, what a bummer that this innocent man, Simon, had to carry this cross through Jerusalem. But listen, there's only one innocent man in this passage, and his name is not Simon. His name is Jesus. Simon was a sinner, guilty before God. And as a sinner, Simon deserved this cross of condemnation. Simon was really carrying his own cross here. Cross that he deserved. But here's the thing. It wasn't just Simon who deserved this cross. Do you know whose cross this is in this passage? It's yours. It's your cross. It's your cross. It's your cross. It's your cross. It's my cross. It's our cross. It's not Jesus' cross. It's our cross. It's Simon's cross. Why, why is this thing our cross? Why, why, why did we deserve that cross? Because the Bible says we're all sinners. Guilty before God. Deserving the wrath of God. Deserving to be punished by God. Deserving an eternal hell from God. That's that cross of condemnation. There is not Jesus' cross. It's, it's yours. It's mine. It's ours. But man, here's the amazing thing. When, when this procession here finally gets to Golgotha, Jesus will take this cross from Simon. And Jesus will call it his own. Jesus will own this cross of condemnation and he'll die on it. And you know the amazing thing at the end of this passage here, guess what? Simon walks away free. Which is a picture for us. Jesus will take our cross of condemnation here. He will own it. Jesus will take the sin of sinners upon himself. He'll take the guilt of sinners upon himself. And he'll be crushed, embracing the full punishment of that sin. The sin of sinners like you and me. Jesus will take our cross of condemnation here. In order that we, like Simon, at the end of the passage here, might walk away free. And man, Jesus did it. It's done. It's a done deal. Jesus died and said, it is finished. He took the cross of condemnation so, so that sinners like you and me might be free and no longer carry the cross of condemnation. And all you need now for this amazing exchange to take place in your life 
All you need for Jesus to take your cross of condemnation and to give you freedom, all you need is faith. A genuine, simple, childlike faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Master. A genuine faith that will then lead you to follow Jesus all of your days. And if you have that type of faith in Jesus, your cross of condemnation is gone. And you're free. You're free. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, you're, you're free. But you, you know what you're now free to do? You're now free to follow Christ with joy. You're now, you're now free to serve Christ with joy. You're, you're now free to honor Christ. You're free to love Christ for the rest of your life. You know what you're now free to do? You just lost your cross of condemnation and now you're free to pick up a cross of discipleship and follow Jesus down the way of suffering and sorrows, which is the way that every Christian will go. You're free. You're free. And you know what? The Bible seems to indicate that that exchange there, it may have truly happened for this man named Simon. Many people believe that after Simon carried this cross here, after he saw Jesus crucified, after he saw Jesus die on this cross, he put his faith in Christ, became a Christian, and followed Christ the rest of his life. And people believe that because when Mark talks about Simon of Cyrene in Mark 15, Mark names two of Simon's sons, Alexander and Rufus, who later became very well-known Christians in the early church. So it's speculation, but I think it's highly possible that Simon, after carrying this cross here and then passing it off to Jesus and watching Jesus die on that cross, he realized something. Jesus just died on my cross. Jesus just took the punishment that I deserved. And he put his faith in Christ a Savior, a Master, and he followed Christ all of his days, and then he led his family to Christ, including his two sons. And, and I believe that probably did truly happen for this man, Simon. And man, when, when you really then stop and think about what's going on here in this passage, you, you have to ask, who's the true friend here? Simon? Who's the true friend here? And when you first look at this passage, this is part about Simon here. It appears here as if Simon is the friend. Simon is a, is a friend of sorts for Jesus in Jesus' time of need. But man, when you really stop and, and think about what's going on here, you realize Simon wasn't the true friend here. Jesus was. Simon wasn't ultimately being a friend here for Jesus in Jesus' time of need. No, Jesus was ultimately being a friend here for Simon in his time of need. Jesus was ultimately being a friend here for us in our time of need. Jesus is not the needy one here. We are. 
We are in a desperate need. All of us, because of our sin, carrying a cross of condemnation, and heading very quickly towards an eternal hell. No way out of that. And Jesus, from His place in heaven, the eternal Son of God, looked down and saw us in our need. And He befriended us in our need. He came down and took on human flesh. And as a man, He lived a perfect life. And then He took our cross of condemnation upon His own back. Suffered the punishment that you and I deserve in order that through faith in Him we might walk away free. Free of all condemnation. Jesus is the friend here. And a friend in our desperate need, that's a friend indeed. A true friend and that's Jesus. So that's one person Luke tells us about here who appears at first glance to be a sort of friend for Jesus in his time of need. And then Luke tells us here about a group of women. Look at verse 27. And there followed Jesus a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Just picture it as Jesus struggles here through Jerusalem, heading to Golgotha along this Via Dolorosa, this bloody way of suffering. He's followed by a great multitude, Luke says. Many of the people here had probably just been shouting for his death in front of Pilate, and they are now with joy going out to see his gruesome crucifixion. But Luke says that there's also a group of women there actually mourning and lamenting for Jesus, actually Grieving for Jesus. You know, it's common today in in the Middle East, it's common to see these very open displays of of grief, of of mourning. There's a bombing or something like that, and then all of a sudden you you see on the news all of these men and women just just openly grieving, weeping and wailing and, and hitting their heads and beating their chests. And it's probably similar to what these women here were doing. We don't know for sure who these women were. It's possible that there were a few of Jesus' disciples here, female disciples. Uh, But I tend to think that these women here were probably not his disciples because Jesus calls them daughters of Jerusalem and most of his disciples were from up north in Galilee. And that phrase, daughters of Jerusalem, was just kind of a formal title for Jewish women. So I tend to think that these women here were probably just devout Jewish women living in Jerusalem And they had come out to mourn the death of this young Jewish man named Jesus at the hand of the Romans. Some sort of genuine pity for Jesus, some sort of genuine mourning for Jesus. And and these women here, they may have actually been fulfilling some sort of official role here. The Babylonian Talmud says that because Proverbs 31 commands that strong drink be given to those who are perishing, the Babylonian Talmud says that a group of women would actually follow behind the execution parties in Jerusalem 
and give the condemned person a goblet of wine mixed with spices to numb his senses. And these women here might have been doing that. John 19.23 says that at some point before Jesus was crucified, he was offered some wine mixed with myrrh to numb his senses. And it might have been these women here who offered it to him. They're trailing behind Jesus here, a genuine sort of pity, just watching what's happening here and trying to give Jesus this goblet of wine to numb his senses. And Jesus now, in in the midst of this intense pain and anguish, a, a bloody mess stumbling towards this place called the skull, he hears these women behind him. And he stops. And he turns. And I think, probably very gently, spoke to these women. You look at verse 28. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Why does Jesus say that to these, these women from Jerusalem here? Well, because Jesus knows that an absolute devastation will soon be coming to the city of Jerusalem and all of Israel for that matter. He knows it. This right here is the seventh time in the book of Luke that Jesus has now prophesied that this future devastation will soon be coming to the nation of Israel. Jesus knows here that because of the Jewish leaders who are now following him, Jesus knows here that because many of the other Jewish people had rejected him, rejected the one true Messiah, Jesus knows here that a judgment will soon fall on the nation of Israel, a devastation for their rejection of him, and it ultimately did. Forty years or so after this point right here, A.D. 70, the Romans came in and they surrounded the city of Jerusalem. They burnt it to the ground and they killed an estimated one million Jews. Jesus, he, he knows here that this thing is coming. And, and, and on his way to his execution here, Jesus stops and he gives these women, one final warning. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and your children for the days are coming, Jesus says, when they say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Man, it's absolutely crazy to hear Jesus say that. Because all the way through the Bible, the Bible says that it is a blessing to have children. And Jesus now just essentially said, blessed are the child, childless. Man, Jesus, he sees this future devastation coming to the city of Jerusalem, to all of Israel. And because of this devastation, he basically reverses what the Bible has said all through the other books. And now he says, blessed be the childless at that time. Blessed be you women 
who, who don't have little infants to care for when the Romans come in and annihilate this place. For people in those days, Jesus says here, will say to the mountains, fall on us, and say to the hills, cover us. People will be in such agony in those days that they will cry out to be put out of their misery, wishing that they were dead. Jesus knows they will wish that they were rather crushed by the mountains than endure the devastation that will come on them from the Romans. Look at how Jesus ends in verse 31. He says to these women here, he says, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? You know, every one of us knows that dry wood burns much quicker and much better than green wood that's just been cut from the tree. It's tough to know for sure what Jesus was saying there. I think he was probably just saying something like this. If the Romans can do something like this to me, a piece of green wood, moist and full of life, what will the Romans do to the nation of Israel? A bunch of dry wood. They will burn it to the ground. J.C. Ryle he paraphrases it like this. If the Romans practice such cruelties on me, who am a green tree and the very source of life, what will they do one day to your nation, which is like a barren, withered trunk, dead in trespasses and sins? The Romans will burn it to the ground. And you know, once again, you, you, you initially look at this passage here, and you look at these, these women grieving here for Jesus and following Jesus to Golgotha and possibly even trying to give Jesus something to, to numb his, his, his pain. And it looks on the surface again like Jesus has some sort of friends here. The people are kind of with him in this time of need, in his, in his time of adversity. But when you step back and look at what's really happening here, who's the true friend here? Who's the true friend? These women here aren't ultimately being friends for Jesus. In Jesus' time of need. No, Jesus is ultimately being a friend for these women in their time of need. You think about it. These, these women, these, these daughters of Jerusalem, they probably don't yet have a, a genuine faith in Christ. They may have some, some genuine pity for Christ, but they don't yet have a genuine faith in Christ. And man, if, if that's the case here, then these women are still living under the guilt of their sin. They are all still essentially carrying this cross of condemnation on their backs. They are all very quickly heading towards an eternal hell. Jesus is not the one in need here. It's these women who are truly in need, in desperate need. And man, in their desperate need here, Jesus stops and he befriends them. 
heading to the cross, excruciating pain for him. He very mercifully turns around to these weeping women, weeping sinners, and warns them. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves because you're right now heading towards a terrible judgment. Weep over your sin. Mourn over your sin. Turn away from your sin. And cling to me, the Messiah, the God-man. Cling to me in faith. Weep for yourselves. These women aren't the true friend in this passage. Jesus, Jesus is. A friend indeed in their, their desperate need. And listen, man, right there at the end of the passage, Jesus is being a true friend to you. Because that warning that Jesus speaks to these women here, it's not just for them. It's for you. It's for me. Because listen, Jesus knows at this point that there's a much greater devastation coming than the one that would come in A.D. 70. There's a much greater judgment that's coming in the distant future. It will be a judgment not just on the sin of Israel. It will be a judgment on the sin of the entire world. Jesus knows here that it's coming. You know, many people in our day, they like to mock the idea of a future final judgment. There, there is a, there's a bumper sticker uh, now that reads, non-judgment day is coming. It's making fun of the idea that there might be some sort of final judgment. It's people believing that no one will really ever be judged for anything. Do whatever you want. But the Bible is very, very clear in talking about a future final judgment, not just on the sin of Israel, but on the sin of the entire world. And the people on that day, in that final judgment, people on that day who do not have a genuine faith in Christ, they never truly turned away from their sin in this life, they they never truly... um, clung to Jesus in faith in this life they either just rejected Christ outright or they said they believed in Christ and said they were a Christian but they were just playing a game all of those who are not in Christ on that final judgment day they will find that according to the Bible to be a terrible day they will wish they were dead The Bible says that people then will say the same thing Jesus just said the people of Jerusalem would say back then. Here it is, Revelation 6.15. Then in the final judgment, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks. Fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? 
And there's a much greater judgment coming than what these women here were facing. And Jesus is warning us here. Don't weep for me. You know, it's easy. We're walking through the crucifixion story right now. It's easy as we go through it to kind of feel a sort of pity for Jesus. And to, to kind of weep for Jesus. I get, I get that. That's okay. But you know what Jesus would say to us? I don't need your pity. I don't need you weeping for me. Weep for yourselves. Because you did it to me. Weep for yourselves. Mourn over your own sin. Escape from this judgment to come. You walk through this passage the first time. Man, it looks like all these different people. Some sort of friends for Jesus in his time of need. Simon, these women. But man, when you get down to the brass tacks of this passage, none of these people are the true friends here. Jesus is. A true friend for them in their time of need. A true friend for you in your time of need. Amen. I think the simple question at the end of this passage is this. What are you going to do with this friend? What are you going to do with him? Are you going to reject him outright? Are you going to play a game with him? Or repent and, and follow him? A friend in your need is a friend indeed. And that's Jesus. May God, may God help you to respond to this friend wisely. So Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for a Christ who came, carried a cross of condemnation for us. Thank you, Father, for the Christ who would warn us, even here in this passage, to repent and trust, for there is a judgment coming. Thank you, Father, that Jesus is, is not the ultimate needy one. Here in this passage, we are. Father, we can never give you something that you actually need. You are the all-sufficient one. We need you. We need your help. Pray, Father, that you would spark faith in our hearts. And help us, Father, to cling to Christ. Not play games with Christ. And run after him all of our days. We pray in